Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and on the broadcast today we have Jen Oshman. Jen has been in ministry for 20-plus years. She's served as a missionary. She's a pastor's wife. They've been on three different continents. She has four daughters. But what caught my attention was her first book, Enough About Me, Find a Lasting Joy in the Age of Self. So we're going to talk about that as well as her podcast. We just found out about this late, Jen. I apologize, but you've been doing this since 2019, and we were scanning your topics. And You're not afraid to dive in the deep end here, lady. (laughs) That is true, for better or worse. That is how the Lord has wired me. And sometimes I feel like it's a blessing. Sometimes I feel like it's a cursing, but it's my calling nonetheless, and I just pray the Lord helps me to be faithful in it. Well, you are from my vantage, and I thank you for what you're doing because, again, it's great for women to step into these topics and address things. Let's start, first of all, a little about your background. You grew up in Colorado, it says, and you spent time with Cadence. We had friends with Cadence for many years. You were in Japan? Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. So my husband and I married at a scandalously young age. About a year after we got married, we headed overseas and we were missionaries in Okinawa, Japan for 10 years. We took a newborn baby with us and had two more and adopted a fourth and loved our ministry to the American military. It was such a fruitful, joyful time. And we look back on those years with incredible fondness. So anyway, you were a decade there. It says you served with Pioneers International in the Czech Republic. That had to be a fascinating tour. Yeah, that was a huge change. So we loved our time with Cadence, but the Lord moved us from that, a burden that had been on my husband's heart since going to college in the Czech Republic. He spent a semester in Prague and was really just shocked, horrified to see in the Czech Republic that while there are cathedrals and crucifixes everywhere, people generally do not know who Jesus Christ is. They think of him as the baby that brings gifts on Christmas Eve, but nothing more than that. And so that was something that really sort of haunted him and stuck with him, our whole marriage. And so we made a big transition a number of years ago and changed from serving the American military in Okinawa, Japan. And we took our girls and we moved to the Czech Republic where we partnered with a Czech church and ministered there for two years. We thought we would be there for the rest of our days, but the Lord called us home. What we felt like was premature. We know that it was his perfect time, but we came home to care for my father who was dying from Alzheimer's and dementia about six years ago. So we've been in the U.S. since then. But yes, suffice it to say that Czech Republic is very different than Okinawa, Japan, and both ministries were full of hardship and joy in very different ways, and we just thank God for the privilege of being able to do those things and would love to go back overseas someday if God would allow, but we're we're thankful for the current calling we have here in Colorado. Not related to your books or podcasts, perhaps, but how'd your girls do with all this transition? That's a good question and one that people ask us all the time. I will say that I think it you know it was hard for all of us growing up on three different continents has definitely been a challenge. But consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, right? There was definitely a work of perseverance that the Lord has done in each of us and character that he wrought through the furnace of the trials. And I think brought our family incredibly close to one another in a way that might not have happened if we had not made such big transitions together. So, you know, they consider Okinawa, I think, kind of home more than the others because those were their youngest years. But then they dove into life in the Czech Republic and they learned to speak Czech and went to Czech public school. And then they came here to the United States. And, you know, we talk a lot and take advantage of counseling when necessary and just try to process as a family and walk in health and with God's help for sure. We moved from Texas to Virginia, D.C. and then Chicago and then Tennessee. And it impacted all our kids, each one of those ministry moves. But 
I often tell people the sovereign providential hand of God in their lives, even when their parents make decisions that might be boneheaded, but in any event, it's, it's yes. interesting to watch and it's, it's more and more challenging, I think. Well, let's jump. I want to talk a little bit about your first book uh, before we jump into the newer one. Enough about me finding lasting joy in an age of self. When I saw this, I did not read the entire book, full confession, but scanned quite a bit of it. I was struck. You dove into some waters. Well, just Sunday, I made an observation and an illustration. I said, I went to, I won't mention the company of service. I was getting service the other day, and these two young ladies were on their phones, and they were doing this with their thumb on TikTok the entire time. I was standing in line for service, and I thought, what has happened to us? And it took me back to your first book. Where did we get this comparison thing with all this other, you know, social media for ill or for good? Gosh, help me out. Give us a primer on on the first book, Finding Lasting Joy, which I thought was important in an age of self. Sure. Well, that book came out just a couple of years ago, but it was a phenomenon that I could observe even when living overseas, a phenomenon that I think is true in Europe as well. It can be kind of the human condition, especially in a modern, wealthy Western context where we have the privilege of feeling like we're self-sufficient in a lot of ways because we go to work, we make money, we pay our bills, we pay for our health care, we pay for our food. You know, there's this sort of facade that we are self-made people and that we have worked hard so that we can provide lives of safety, comfort, ease, and health for ourselves and our children. And that's just been the cultural air that we've been breathing over the last several hundred years. I think, you know, in the book, I go back to the Enlightenment and kind of come forward and do a fast forward through history. But this definitely, you know, we can even look back at Adam and Eve who chose to disobey the Lord and in the garden say, did God really say that? Are, are, are we really meant to abide in him or can we strike out on our own? And so we live in this age that really does want us to be self-made, self-help, self-fulfilling, self-identifying. And what's true is that the sociological data reveals it's not going well for us. We are hurting ourselves. The numbers for depression, self-harm, anxiety, stress, suicide, even amongst girls ages 10 to 14 are through the roof. And so we can just look back over the last decade or two. Not surprisingly, it matches the advent of the smartphone and all of us scrolling as the two gals you observed were just the other day. But this age of self then combined with this age of social media is sort of a deadly recipe because we think we have to be self-made and we want to look a certain way. And then we're scrolling these perfected airbrushed or filtered images online of other people's highlights and thinking we must measure up to that. And if we don't, then there's something wrong with us or we've got to work harder and try harder and we're burning out. And so I just see a lot of destruction and darkness surrounding the age of self. And I wanted to address it. And the place that we find lasting joy, not surprisingly to those who have surrendered their lives to the Lord Jesus, is in laying our lives down, not in seeking to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and work harder and try harder and do better. But it's found in the Lord. In the Christian economy, we talk a lot about finding balance. And I've always been a little bit of a contrarian going, so am I balancing between sin and goodness? Am I balancing between what extreme? And for me, the way I utilize social media, if it was not for in context and other things we do, I would probably shut it all off. But I also see the aggregate of news. What's happened is culturally is so different than the way I was raised or my parents were raised. You're quite a bit younger than me, but it's changed so much, Jen. And so information is largely 
the way people get it is through social media. They're not going to sit down and read a paper. They're not going to subscribe, most of them, to you know even a Christian journal of some kind or, or magazine. So we're kind of left with this conundrum. Do we have to just put borders and balance around TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and what's coming next? Or do we say, probably it would be good to unplug from all that? I think that the answer to that is so hard and going to be different for every person. However, I think we all could stand to unplug a lot more than we have. I don't know that if we could look back on social media and determine that it's really been a net positive for us. I'm not so sure. I mean, this we're all living through this huge experiment in real time and subjecting ourselves. We are we're sort of rats in the laboratory as we see you know, what really happens to our hearts and souls and minds and bodies as we subject ourselves to hours and hours a day of scrolling. So it's hard, you know, I appreciate, for example, the voice of Andy Crouch and the TechWise family. That was a book that was helpful to my family in terms of figuring out how to unplug a bit every day, every week, every month, every year. You know, we've just, it's something that we have to talk about, my husband and myself, as well as myself with my friends who are my accountability partners and women who disciple me. And then we're talking about it with our daughters around the table every day. It's just something we are always addressing. How is your soul? Is this good for your soul or is this bad for your soul? What kinds of parameters and boundaries can we put around this invention, this technology, so that it is serving us, we are not serving it? I don't have all the answers to that. All I can say is that we talk about it a lot, pray about it a lot, and probably adjust our boundaries pretty frequently Mm -hmm. to try to pivot in such a way that we are honoring the Lord and doing what's good for us, his, His creatures. Of course, my oldest is almost 40, and Cindy and I talked about Cindy was a firm believer in every child being in the sport and trying an instrument. And as we went from, you know, one, two, three, four, it got more complicated to juggle all that. But she was very, worked very hard at giving them opportunities and experiences. And from our oldest our to our youngest, what changed in technology? I mean, the cell phone was such a revolutionary thing. And we saw so many different degradations to the point where we did private school, we did public school, we did, you know, combinations, tutors, and we finally ended up doing tutorials. And I've made this statement now in our church here in Tennessee several times in the last few weeks. I've gotten some parents quite riled. If your kid isn't in a tutorial or a homeschool, you're crazy. (laughs) Because it seems like even if you got a really sharp kid, nothing works in their favor in the now, granted, I'm overstating it. In certain communities around the country, I'm sure there's some very good public school systems, but it's becoming treacherous, even here in Williamson County, Middle Tennessee. I don't know what, what your thoughts are on this, but you know, the, the constantly adjusting wears me out, Jen. I'm looking for a way to say, okay, I can protect my child somewhat better by doing A, B, or C. Yeah, I, as a parent, I feel this so deeply. And we, with our four daughters, like you, we have done so many things. We have homeschooled, we've done public school overseas, we've done Christian school, we've done boarding school. We've even sent a kid to boarding school, which I know sounds crazy to so many people. So we truly have done it all. And what I can say with confidence for sure is that even with homeschool, no solution is ideal. They all fall short because we live in a fallen world. But parents really must 
be diligent. Like we are responsible to disciple our children. We have to just leave it all on the field. We cannot let one day go by where we're not investing in our kids and shaping, you know, debriefing around the dinner table every night or before bed, debriefing what went on today. And if you're in public school, you're having a different debrief kind of conversation than you are if you're in Christian school or in your, in homeschool. But we have to be investing and discipling and vigilant. And something you said a minute ago, which is a huge source of comfort for me, is just trusting God's sovereignty and his providence. And at the end of the day, sleeping well, because I know that he loves my kids more than I do. And I know that only the Holy Spirit can shape their hearts. And so I work as hard as I can and do all that I can to pour into my kids. But then I lay my head down on that pillow and sleep well at night because I know that my father in heaven will reach my children according to his good will and good plan. And I have to take some melatonin so I can sleep that sleep you're talking about. Anyway, okay, cultural counterfeits confronting five empty promises of our age and how we were made for so much more. Your newest book for our listeners to get them uh, primed. You have basically three parts of your book. You're here is part one, confronting the empty promises of our age is part two, and part three, we were made for so much more. So as I scan the first chapter, waking up in a far country, sexual revolution meets me too timeless lenses for change and trends. Give us a summary and sort of a tease for our friends. Why do they need to read this, Jen? You are here. And what are the challenges, these counterfeits, as you call them? Yeah. Well, as you said in the introduction, I have been in women's ministry now for over 20 years, and I'm a woman myself, and I have four daughters. And so I have had a front row seat on how culture has been shaping women and girls over the last several decades. Like I said, the way the Lord has knit me together is that I love to observe what's happening in culture and then see how the Bible speaks to that. What does the Word of God have to say to this cultural moment? How can I interpret my context through the Word of God in such a way where I honor Him and I love the neighbors that are around me. And the reality is, and I think probably most of your listeners will resonate with that, is things have been changing swiftly since the sexual revolution, since the 1960s. The way that we view women and girls, marriage, sex, many of the things that I identify in the book have been, and and related to the age of self, which I address in Enough About Me, have just been to our demise and have been very destructive. But these are promises that are made to women and girls that they promise life, but deliver death. They promise freedom, but really deliver enslavement. And so I wanted to reach the reader and just sort of pull back the facade that looks so nice and shiny. And like, you need to have this particular identity or this particular encounter or habit or status And just show her that what's true is that we have a good God who made us and saved us and designed us to abide in him and that these are counterfeits and we were actually made for so much more. So I really hope that this book serves the reader well and that she can take a step back, look at history, look at her current context and see that some of the things that have been peddled to her as the shiniest and that she needs the most are really the deadliest. I have often said that God made man in his image, in his image, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then I quip and I said, and man has made God in his image and has been remaking him ever since. When the fall occurred, when Adam fell, he fell far. And it almost seems everything is opposite from what his intention was, not just a variant, but an opposite. And as I look through your your work here, I mean, especially the sexual revolution meets me too. I'm again, I'm a little older. I vividly remember when the pill became available and what was written about it. 
because this freed women in particular from the fear of pregnancy. And then, of course, we have the 70s and we have Woodstock and all this stuff, the 60s, 70s. Ironically, as that went forward, it did bifurcate the sexes more and animosity grew and feminism grew and chauvinism was exposed for obviously a lot of damage, but some of it overstepping what you know male roles really are to the point now I'm vilified because I happen to be white and an old man. And it, it's happened so quickly in some respects, but you tie this together with me too. So help me out here a little. <laughs> well, I don't know that our brief conversation will do the whole topic justice because it requires, oh, just so much deep thinking and nuance, but I will give it a go here. I argue in the book and what I see in my own life and what I see in the women's lives around me is that the sexual revolution has convinced women in general and girls in general that the more sexual encounters, the better. The more sexual opportunities you have, the more you will realize your true identity, the fuller your life will be. And girls are facing this in such a way that they're being sexualized at a very young age and taught from a very young age that to be sexy is to be powerful. It's the, the sexier you are the better it is. And so we're growing up in these cultural waters led to think that sex is our highest good and our best tool. And it's what we've got to use to realize our full potential. So I see that the fruition of that, the maybe unforeseen ultimate consequence of that then is that in 2017, we have the Me Too movement come on the scene where many women are feeling for the first time empowered to say, I actually don't like this. I was raised to think that I should pursue it, that this was my best way to climb the corporate ladder or otherwise. But in reality, I don't like the way I've been treated. I don't like the way my body has been exploited and used. Now, of course, the Me Too movement in a secular context says, well, maybe you need to have a different sexual encounter or a different gender orientation. That leads us to a whole host of other cultural counterfeits. But what I argue in the book is that, of course, the sexual revolution has been to our demise. And of course, the Me Too movement pulls back the curtain on that and reveals something about us. And that is that we have a good God who created us and designed us to abide in him and created, you know, we look at Genesis 1 and 2, created Adam and Eve. He created marriage to be between one man and one woman for the duration of their life until death do they part. He created family and he created all of that very good. Now, it's not to say that man hasn't been sinful since Genesis 3, and some of those things have been dark and abusive since Genesis 3. But if we turn to our God and turn to the way he created us and designed us to live, if we return to him, we see that we, as the subtitle of the book says, that we were made for so much more. These counterfeits sell us short. They lead to depression, suicide. There's a ton of sociological data in the book but they have been to our harm. And so I want the reader to see that our Father is merciful and good and kind, and He keeps beckoning us home. No matter how many times we run out to the far country like the prodigal, or no matter how many times we trust in our own good behavior like the older brother, the Father beckons us home, and we were made for so much more. You know, it's interesting. Another thing I often say is that sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. And so in the context of marriage, you know, this is the way God designed it, heterosexual monogamous for life. So there is an outlet 
for this wonderful expression he's given us. But if we take an illegitimate approach to it, outside the bonds of marriage, you know, experimenting with different identities and so forth, it gets all gummed up. And as a pastor, one of the struggles I have faced, because I look at a congregation of people that they're hurting, they're broken. Some are solid. I mean, certainly it's a bell curve in every church. In the church, your husband pastors, I'm sure. You have some really solid folks and some really struggling folks. And so you're not mad at these people. You're not trying to beat up on them, but you're trying to impress upon them. And if I hear you correctly, is sin is it's insatiable. It can't be satisfied. But the joy that Christ offers, you're made for so much more, to use your language. It's hard won for most Christians. Sin is immediate. It's quick, you know, and there's no judgment anymore today. And the idea of a virtuous marriage and treating Cindy like I should and her treating me as she should and so forth, that takes a lot of work. It's hard won work, even if for the believer who, you know, wants to do the right thing. And so for me, the fulcrum as a pastor is I don't want to make them just feel guilty and ashamed, but at the same time, as Rosario Butterfield famously said, it's not loving if we don't call someone to repentance. So again, I'm prattling a little bit here, but how do we help folks understand it's worth the wait, it's worth hard-won work in a sense, not, not working out our salvation, but work in the sense that it takes discipline, it takes routines, it takes the right friendships, the right, you mentioned discipleship groups. You got to surround yourself with like-minded people it's so much easier to hang out with the wayfarers and the sluggards and, you know, those of the world. You're right. It is difficult as just a human alive in 2022, but also as a leader in the church to consistently bring forth what's true in a way that is gracious and kind and draws people to the Lord and to His goodness. One thing I often say to myself and to women that I minister to is that burnout is a gift. When we wake up in the far country like the prodigal son and we come to ourselves and we realize that we are actually starving, that we actually hunger for the feast that the Father is preparing, that is a gift. It's such an uncomfortable, painful place to be, but we must die before we live again. You know, there must be a death before a resurrection and we must come to the end of ourselves and we must burn out and realize that the sin that we've been participating in really did not satisfy. You know, when we experience that burnout, then what will we do with it. Will we receive the father's kind invitation? You know, in the prodigal son parable, we see that he's watching for us while we're yet a long way off. Will we run into his arms as the prodigal did? Will we stay out in the far country and say, you know what? I'm good on my own. I'm going to trust in my own behavior. I'm going to conjure up a plan and try to fix it myself. What will we do with that? And I just love the mercy of the father. And my prayer is that we will return to him because I think what Christians find, and it's something that you have to taste and see that the Lord is good. But what we who are in Christ know, because we've walked in this, is that the nurturing care of a community that loves the Lord and being surrounded by His people, empowered by His Spirit, rooted in His Word. I mean, that is where lasting joy is found. That's the good life. That is the good life in Jesus. And it's available to you and me. But it's through a death, and it's through a surrendering, and it's through a confession that we cannot conjure up this life on our own. So I try to constantly remind women, you know, when you're burnt out, praise the Lord. Let's run back to Him in our exhaustion and defeat and discouragement. He'll receive us. 
that's a good reminder for all of us. I want to move to your chapter dealing really more with sexual identity because you talk about bodies and beauty. You talk about cheap sex, the trends of LGBTQAI. I just read an article this weekend. Christopher Yuan and I trade a lot of information, and he sent me an article that talked about the L and the G community being very angry at the, you know, BTQAI, you know, fill in the blank plus. And it was striking to me that even within the confines of these groups that identify as lesbian or gay, they don't necessarily like, you know, how far it's gone, so to speak. <laughs> it's kind of a mind bender that those who are, have chosen identity contrary to the way God's made them are still mad because others are chose, choosing a way that's contrary to the way God made them. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have a weird sense of humor. Sorry. Well, I think you're right. It's hard to keep up. It's hard to, things are moving and changing so quickly, especially when it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity and what is, you know, the right answer these days and what's in curriculum and what's online and what we should be saying or we shouldn't be saying. It's hard to keep up. And again, I think that's just another opportunity for us as believers. You know, here's something I want to say to believers, and I say this in the introduction to cultural counterfeits, is that it can be tempting to want to put our head in the sand in this cultural moment or to run away or to flee or to sort of become secluded in our own community somewhere. But I want to encourage Christians, we have the words of life. You know, remember when the Apostle Peter said to Jesus, well, where else would we go? You are God. You have the words of life. And I want to say that to the Christian community right now. We can be a porch light in a dark night. It is dark right now, and we have the opportunity to hold out the light of the world and true life to those who are suffering and those who are hurting and those who've tried on a hundred identities and find that none of them satisfy. And so let's not shrink back. Let's be merciful and gracious and kind, but let's also be filled with the truth because it is the truth that sets people free. And take this opportunity in this cultural moment to know what the word says and to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to be that porch light in a dark night. This is our time to just be a bold encouragement, winsome, kind, and gracious, absolutely, but also not ashamed of God's word because that is the word of truth. That's the word of life. You have a chapter on when marriage and motherhood become idols, and this is another area that this and I have talked a lot about over the decades. Howard Hendricks was one of our professors and in many ways wrote the book on the Christian home, and later in his life, I heard him say it many times. He said, I think we have worshiped the family and the children more than God intended, meaning, and, and he says, and me saying that should make you pause because I wrote these books on, you know, the heaven help the home and all these other, other type of books he wrote about the Christian family. Give me Jen's take on marriage and motherhood and how they can become idols today. Sure. Well, I think that the church, as the sexual revolution has unfolded over the last several decades, I think that the church has rightly pushed back on that cultural trend and said, no, as, as the world has cheapened sex and marriage and motherhood, we want to protect them. And sex and husbands and wives and children, those things need to be rallied around and protected. And so I definitely do not fault the church for wanting to push back and say, no, these are good gifts because they absolutely are good gifts and worthy of our time and effort and um, self-sacrifice. 
But as we so often do, we tend to swing the pendulum too far sometimes and put things on a pedestal that should not be there. And so what can happen in the church then is rather than making an idol out of perhaps sex or a gender identity, we make an idol out of our marital status or becoming parents. And we know we have done that when we in the church as believers have said, unless I am married you know, I I haven't reached my full potential. I can't be truly sanctified or I can't be a leader in the church or I can't be fully useful to God. I can't be who I was meant to be until I am married or until I am a mother. And that might not be something that we always say out loud, but I can promise you it is sometimes said out loud and it is often implied inside the church. And our single brothers and sisters feel that and they feel less than because of the ways we have put marriage and motherhood on a pedestal. And so that chapter is just a gentle rebuke to myself and to my (laughs) siblings in the Lord to say, our identity can't be found in these relationships either. But again, we've been created to abide in the Lord. Let's return to the Father here as well. I often remind young couples, we have a lot of young families in our church with a lot of kids, which is fabulous. And I remind them, you'll be empty nest parents longer then you will have children in the home, even if you have eight or nine kids, you know, because just numerically speaking, when you dated, courted, had your first child post, you know, the, the one leaving home, it, it's an interesting phenomenon. My peer love being empty nest. That's hard to say probably for some, but we love it. And we also love watching our kids become adults. But hindsight's twenty twenty, and you look back on how you parented, and in many cases over-parented, we have, you know, my firstborn is on the other side of the glass, Hannah, who helps me. And, you know, we overparented her. There's no doubt. And then we have three adopted children, as you have a fa- have one as well, I understand. Each child's unique. And so Cindy was, I mean, she ate, slept, and drank being a great Christian mom. And yet, as you look back, you know, as they become adults and you say, okay, what could we have done differently if only, and we tell parents all the time, do not play this game. Do not go back and say, if I'd have done this, that would have happened. Number one, it, it doesn't help anything. Number two, you can't really correct it even if you could. And number three, back to my earlier comment, the sovereign providential hand of God over my life, over Jen's life before she was married, you know, we can't dismiss that what's happened to us in a fallen context has a purpose. I mean, I like it. I may wish my children have made this decision versus that decision. But anyway, I'm prattling again. I appreciate you stepping into a gentle rebuke, if you will, or a reminder, because I watch young moms in particular. They have that first baby. It's the first child ever born in the universe. <laughs> you know, And it's wonderful. It's a beautiful, blessed thing to watch. At the same time, it's like, you know, you got to live too. We're all mapping our way, right? We don't have it figured out yet. Yeah, you know, and I think part of this whole conversation too in this moment is also social media related to marriage and motherhood. I mean, my firstborn is 18. Our adopted daughter's older, she's 24. But when I first became a mom 18 years ago, social media was not prevalent. I was not on Facebook. And so I had no idea how other moms were raising their kids. I didn't know anything about pureeing my own baby food or sleep techniques or breastfeeding or formula (laughs) feeding. Like, I did not know. And so it was between me And my in real life friends, my mom, my doctor, you know, that's who helped me figure it out. And and poor young mothers are under tremendous pressure just because of what they're scrolling online and seeing and just the weight that they're feeling from that. So if you're a young mom listening to this, I just want to encourage you to 
you know, open up those white knuckles, unclench the situation, <laughs> and know that God will help you and to just rest easy. You don't have to obey everybody online. Our friend Rachel Cruz wrote the book, Love Your Life, Not Theirs. And it was sort of her own confession about Pinterest and Instagram, you know, because you get, oh, 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 oh. And, you know, before long, you can be redecorating your mantle the 18th time because of something you saw. And then, as you pointed out, mm. I hadn't thought about that because I remember when, when Hannah was born, the women that came around Cindy to help her being a first-time mom. And they were from the church. I was in grad school at the time, and we had this incredible Christian friend that was a nurse and she came over and helped Cindy with some things, and they were, oh, this will be fine. They were matter-of-fact about things. They had tricks of the trade, if you will. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I hadn't thought about that. been a long time since we had a little bit. Well, we have grandchildren now. That's different. That's my daughter's problem. I just get to enjoy them. Let's talk about it's good to be a girl. I want to hear your take on this, and I want our friends to hear about this, because we have so jumbled up sexual identity and what you can say about yourself and pronouns you have to use. Oi, why is it good to be a girl? Yeah, I feel like there is no better time than right now to be reminding girls and women that it is good to be a girl. There's so many things, pitfalls, ditches that are happening in our society that tell girls that it's less than to be a woman or that it's some sort of liability to be a girl. And I just want to remind women and girls that we were created by a good God. and He gave us a good design. And so it was just a joy for me to write this chapter entitled, It's Good to Be a Girl, and to look back at the scriptures, Genesis 1 and 2, and specifically where the Lord discusses creating Eve from Adam's rib and creating a helper, and that Hebrew word, ezer, and teaching what that means in the Hebrew to the reader, and just the, the joy it was for me to share with women, the strength behind that word, and God's creativity, the diversity that we see in scripture amongst women. You know, there's not a cookie-cutter woman in the Bible, but God made each one unique for the specific time and place where he had a calling and a purpose for her. And we see that beyond scripture in history as well. And so I wanted to just sort of reframe the conversation about all the reasons it's good to be a girl. And sometimes our Christian conversations about girlhood and womanhood are framed more in like, what, what can't you do or what is not permissible rather than the just ridiculous options that are out there for how mm-hmm. God made us and the creative mm-hmm. ways he designed us. And so I just wanted to have the conversation from that perspective of, it is good to be a girl and God has good purposes for us. So let us rejoice and walk in that good design. I appreciate you bringing up the word etzer in Hebrew. Cindy and I taught marriage conferences for over 15 years, and I would always make a big thing about helper. And I'd say, you know, if I say that he made you as a helper, the hair on the back of your neck stands up. And then I would read a few passages from Psalms, which says, God is our helper. God is our help in time of need. And I say, so if here I raise my Ebenezer, We've changed that hymnology here, raised my stone of helping. But I need help from someone that's better equipped, has a different perspective, maybe more intelligent. I mean, certainly Cindy outshines me in finances and critical thinking skills. She's a realtor. She's brilliant what she does. And I'm glad for that. And she helps me, not in a diminutive doormat submissive way. She comes along as a co-heir. And again, the other thing that Cindy and I have a a penchant for is trying to help couples understand the role of headship and submission has been misinterpreted because submission isn't a role. Submission is a response. And headship is a role insofar as it's biblical headship. 
meaning I have to put Cindy's needs ahead of mine and be willing to die for her as Christ did for his church. And so I say, if you reframe this biblically, not talking cultural, not talking churches, if you just look at what the Bible's teaching about this, it's a pretty healthy relationship. It's a pretty good thing. There's not a lesser person and a greater person. The husband isn't better than the wife. And it's unfortunate it, it took, I don't know, Maybe it's not unfortunate, but it just seems like a long haul to get here for the church to wake up and say, as you said so well, it's not what women can't do. And the same would be true for men. There are certain things men shouldn't be involved in, in my worldview. Anyway, I'm prattling again. Land the plane for us, Jen. So you wrote this book. Obviously, you have an opportunity and a great voice right now to talk about cultural counterfeits. Give us a summary that we might not get in the book or in conversations you've had with friends who've read the book and you sit back and reflect on it and go, okay, what are the, what are the two, three top things that we need to be aware of when it comes to counterfeits in our culture? I think my heart behind this book more than anything else, and what I say to women when I speak about the book or have conversation about the book is I say to them, what I want you to remember more than anything is the heart of the father who created you and sacrificed his son to save you. And this is the father that we see in the parable of the prodigal son who has a feast and invites both sons, both the prodigal son who went out to the far country and wasted his life in reckless, foolish, licentious living. But he also went out to the older son who is very moral and upright, best behavior, and yet also rejected his relationship with the father. The father entreats both sons and invites both sons in. So if we see ourselves as the legalistic older brother or the licentious younger brother, the father is now preparing a feast for all of us. And so my desire is that the truth of the counterfeits of our age, whether that's the way we obsess about our bodies and our appearance, or it's cheap sex or abortion, LGBTQ, or it's the idols that are hidden in the church of marriage and motherhood. I just want to pull back the veil on these counterfeits and remind women that we were made for so much more. And that is in a relationship that is vibrant as we abide in our creator and in our savior. Jen Osman's newest book, Cultural Counterfeits, confronting five empty promises of our age and how we were made for so much more. Also, I want to direct you to her podcast, All Things. Is it just all things? Is that what you're calling it? It's I'll just all that. things. Yeah, just all things. All things. I mean, don't pick a comprehensive title. <laughs> so I'm, I'm scanning through some of these. I'm going to say you're a brave lady. The, the Biden administration raised the refuge ceiling, but exactly who are the refugees? She just jumps right in there. Foster moms talking to your kids about LGBTQ issues. Check out her podcast. Also her first book. And we'll have all the information in the show notes. Jen, thanks for coming on. And I hope you'll come on again in the near future. Absolutely. The pleasure has been mine. Thank you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.